0: I love Ray Ortland. He's a pastor in Nashville. He's going to be retiring this year, but he has had the biggest influence on my life and ministry over the last 10 years. And if you're not following him on Instagram or Twitter, you're missing out. Uh, Very encouraging tweets and posts all the time. Very challenging. I don't know if he's on the Facebooks or not, but uh, he's had an incredible impact on my life over the last 10 years. He said this. This is what our churches must be. Gentle environments of gospel plus safety plus time. It's where we're finally free to grow. That's what we're aiming for here in this church. We want grace to be a safe place for disciples who feel like failures. Where they hear the good news over and over and over again. And where they aren't rushed into anything. No rush to get their act together. No pressure. Not even some kind of self-imposed pressure or deadlines on spiritual growth. Is there urgency? Yes. Is there a sense of urgency in discipleship in the life of a church? Of course. We want people to come to know Jesus. Because they're dying and going to hell. So there is a sense of urgency. We want Jesus to transform us. We don't want to stay the same. So there is this sense of urgency. Do we hate sin? Do we fight sin? Of course. So there is a sense of urgency, yes, but not hurry. Because no one changes quickly, right? Who changes quickly? Let me ask you. Who still struggles With the same old lurking sins. It's all of us. Change is slow. And growth in the Christian life takes time. Sanctification begins at conversion. You are set apart. That's what that word means. You're you're set apart and you belong to Jesus now. And then you begin this long road of transformation for the rest of your life. The Spirit is slowly transforming us to the image of Jesus. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, when we behold the glory of the gospel, then we are changed and transformed by the Spirit of God. But that doesn't necessarily happen overnight, does it? It takes time. So what kind of environment then do disciples grow in? best in is it one where they're continually berated from the pulpit pulpit and told why can't you get your act together and if you would change this church would be better and make more of a difference is that the kind of environment that disciples grow in or is it one that is safe and one where the gospel is everywhere that's what we're shooting for here at grace what we all need is a safe place to hear the gospel again and again and again. No shame, no guilt, no condemnation. And that's what the temple was. The temple that Solomon built was a safe place for sinners where they could come and hear the gospel again and again and again. Where they could come and behold Yahweh's glory. Behold the Lord's glory And be transformed. So churches, just like Solomon's temple in 1 Kings, churches should be gentle environments of gospel plus safety plus time. And that's exactly what we see in 1 Kings 7. You may, you may have noticed that the sermon title reflects this. The sermon title is Gospel plus safety plus time enough to read 51 seemingly boring verses in a sermon. We're not actually going to cover the 51 verses that are in 1 Kings 7 today because there's just not enough time. I wish that I had time enough to read 51 seemingly boring verses in a sermon and make comments about them, but we're booked tight. So we're going to need to break this chapter up into two sermons because there's so much gold here, no pun intended. This chapter is just oozing with gospel Goodness, And some preachers approach this passage as seemingly boring and they actually skip large chunks of it when they preach. But not this guy. That's not how I roll. This is God's word and all the verses should be read even if they don't give us the warm fuzzies on the first reading. But think about this. Isn't there something about a God who chooses to speak through interior design? Who chooses to speak through construction? Isn't there something about a God who speaks to his people through bronze pillars covered with pomegranates and lilies? I think so. I want to know what he's saying. I want to know this kind of God. I want to get to know this kind of God who speaks like this. So since we are limited on time, I'm going to break this chapter up into two sermons. And what we'll see in the first 22 verses today are two Hebrew names that you can repeat to yourself over and over and over again. When you get overwhelmed with life or when you feel like a failure, I've done this before, and I did it a lot this week. It's very helpful, actually. So I hope you catch on and you remember these names, and I hope you do this after this sermon. Sometimes I just repeat these names over and over and over again to myself, and here they are. Here are the names, Jakin and Boaz. Now, the Hebrew pronunciation of Jakin is actually Yachin, but we're just going to pronounce the J of the English translation, Okay. Sometimes Hebrew names and words don't get carried over exactly, like, like the name Samson. Samson is actually Shemshon in Hebrew. I am not about to rewrite every children's curriculum and call it Shemshon and Delilah, okay? Some names just get lost in translation and change throughout. So we're just going to say "Jakin today instead of Yachin. So let's say them together. In fact, let's shout them Together, Okay, you ready? Jacob and Boaz, you ready? One, two, three. Jacob, Boaz. Now, I'm going to explain what those names mean later, but you're going to want to write them down because you're going to need them someday. You're going to need to shout them one day. You're going to need to preach them to your own heart someday. Like, after you really blow it, you're gonna need them. Or when you feel like you just can't go on one more day because life is so overwhelming, you're gonna need them. And just to give you a little idea, a little sneak peek of what they mean, these two Hebrew names are telling us this about Jesus. Number one, Jesus is faithful when you are fickle. And number two, his power, goes on full display when you feel like you can't go on one more day. That's pretty good news, huh? Who hasn't been fickle lately? Who hasn't been fickle in their love for their Lord lately? Who hasn't struggled to love someone in their life who's totally irritating them? Who, has with, who hasn't withheld forgiveness? Who hasn't yelled at their children? Who hasn't been weak And felt like they couldn't muster up the strength to get out of bed and just make it one more day. Yeah, you might not get the warm fuzzies the first time you read 1 Kings chapter 7. But after the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and illumines your mind and you see what he's telling you about Jesus from 1 Kings chapter 7. You might just get the warm fuzzies. I mean, if you don't get the warm fuzzies after hearing that Jesus is faithful to you when you are fickle and that his power goes on full display when you feel like you can't go on one more day, if you don't get the warm fuzzies hearing that about Jesus, then something might be wrong with your heart. You need to have your heart recaptured this morning and the Holy Spirit is really good at that. So I'm just going to let him take over. I'll let the Spirit take over now. He's always been moving and working. I'm not letting him do anything, but you know what I mean. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit take over and let him go to work on your heart this morning. So, buckle up, y'all. The Spirit might just do something crazy here today. And that's what the temple was all about. Solomon was building this temple so that people could see Yahweh's glory, they could see God's glory. And have their hearts recaptured. It was a place where people could come and find shelter. And find peace. And be set free. And feel safe. Just like church is supposed to be. So 1 Kings chapter 7 beginning in verse 1. And hear the word of the Lord. Solomon was building his own house 13 years and he finished his entire house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 was 100 cubits and its breadth 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits and it was built on 4 rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. And it was covered with cedar above the chambers that were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. There were window frames in 3 rows and window opposite window in 3 tiers. All the doorways and windows had square frames, and window was opposite window in three tiers. And he made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits, and its breadth 30 cubits. There was a porch in front with pillars and a canopy in front of them. And he made the hall of the throne where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was finished with cedar from floor to rafters. His own house where he was to dwell in the other court back of the hall was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. All these were made of costly stones, cut according to measure, sawed with saws back in front, even from the foundation to the coping, and from the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits, and above were costly stones, cut according to measurement, and cedar. The great court had three courses of cut stone all around, and a course of cedar beams, So had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the house. Now, I know this doesn't get you all excited like reading a juicy gossip tabloid magazine or watching an episode of Cribs on MTV, if you're old enough to remember that show. Or for you even older folks, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with Robin Leitch. But in this, in some sense, Solomon is is giving us a tour of his crib, if you will. This is lifestyles of the rich and famous ancient Near Eastern style. And on the tour, Solomon takes us first to the house of the forest of Lebanon, which means absolutely nothing to you and me. But it is the word of God. And when the Lord determines to speak to his people through a tour of Solomon's crib, then it would behoove us to listen. This place was likely called the House of the Forest of Lebanon because of the number and the sight of these cedar pillars. Lebanon was known for its cedar trees. When you walked into this area, the numerous cedar pillars reminded you of being in a forest, hence the name House of the Forest of Lebanon. Then Solomon takes us from there to the Hall of Pillars. This was probably a vestibule or a waiting area for what is mentioned next, the Hall of the Throne, where Solomon sat on his throne and made decisions in the Hall of Judgment. Again, these names may not mean much to us, but God decided that they should be in His Word, so we should slow down enough to read them, not skip over them, and then think about them. And then Solomon takes us to the palace that he made for Pharaoh's daughter, his wife. Now, I know it's one thing to see a tour of some house or some building, like on HGTV. It's quite another to read it and to try to imagine it and to get excited about it. Even then, apart from some interior decorators who might be here, this is not necessarily a text that gets you excited, is it? This text doesn't necessarily give you goosebumps. I have never seen a coffee mug or a t-shirt with any verses from 1 Kings chapter 7 on them. If you made a t-shirt and you put the House of the Forest of Lebanon on it, people would probably think it's some indie band. I mean, it sounds like a band name, right? Dude, have you heard that new song by the House of the Forest of Lebanon? It's awesome. They kind of sound like Mumford and Sons. God chose to reveal himself through this seemingly boring house tour. So we must listen. And we should be asking ourselves as we read these verses, what does all of this mean? Why record all of this stuff about Solomon's house? Well, let me draw your attention back to 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38, the last verse of the last chapter. It says this, he was seven years in building it, the temple, Solomon was building his own house 13 years and he finished his entire house. Now, I'm not going to throw Solomon under the proverbial bus here because he spent more time building his house than he did uh, building the temple. Some scholars do that. Some scholars think that the point of the passage is that Solomon was too obsessed with his own house and therefore it took him twice as long to build it. Some scholars love thinking the worst of Solomon Not me. Not yet, anyway. We'll think that about Solomon when we get to chapter 11. But what he's doing here in chapter 7 is just fine. So, is it a big deal that Solomon took longer to build his house than it did the temple? I don't think so. Is it a big deal that Solomon's house was bigger than the temple? I don't think so. And here's why. The Lord himself drew up the plans to the temple. David tells us in 1 Chronicles 28 verse 19 that the Lord drew the plans up and gave them to David and said, tell your son Solomon to build the temple exactly like this. So Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, was the master architect of his temple. Yahweh could have told Solomon to build an even bigger temple if he wanted, but Yahweh was okay living in a three-bed, two-and-a-half bath on a cul-de-sac on Maple Street. The Lord didn't choose to live in a mansion. And so no wonder the author of 1 Kings writes it all down with excited detail. This is what the Lord had commanded, what he had given to David to give to Solomon. Solomon. No wonder the author of 1 Kings seems to write it down with such excitement and with such precise detail because this was God's promise in writing and in the form of blueprints of how he would come to live among his people. How exciting! You have to imagine that the author of 1 Kings was smiling and beaming with excitement to write down this information that Yahweh would live among his people who happen to be sinners, really bad sinners like you and me. That the Lord will allow people access, sinners access to his presence that they could come and behold the glory of the Lord. And yet that's not how we typically approach passages like this, is it? But this is a description of the Lord coming to live with his people. So it's no bother for this preacher to read all the verses like this. And I do think the author of 1 Kings is telling us something by how many verses he gives to Solomon's house versus how many are given to the, the description of the Lord's. Solomon's home... We are told it took 13 years to build, and there are 12 verses about Solomon's home. Yahweh's home, the Lord's home, took 7 years to build, and there are 76 verses. 38 in chapter 6 and 38 in chapter 7. So it took Solomon 13 years to build his home, and he only gets 12 verses of real estate in Scripture. It took Solomon 7 years, much shorter, to build the temple for Yahweh, and yet the writer of 1 Kings spills 70 verses of ink on it. It's like Solomon gets a 15-minute segment on lifestyles of the rich and famous, but Yahweh gets five whole episodes. So what is the author saying when he only gives Solomon 12 verses of real estate in Scripture, but he gives Yahweh 76 verses? by minimizing the government buildings and lavishly describing the temple, the author of 1 Kings is putting life into perspective. Life is not about us. Life is not about our kingdom. Life is not about our nation. Life is not about our nation. Life is about God's glory. It's about His glory being seen and delighted in. And the author of 1 Kings wants us to see that more important than anything, more important than anything in the world, it's worshiping God. It's being in awe of Him that He saves sinners, that He saves sinners like us. It's being in relationship with Him through sacrifice through substitutionary atonement, through what Jesus has done for us. Life is about enjoying fellowship and worship with God's people. It's about marveling that Jesus came to save sinners. It's remembering that God can't remember our sins and then celebrating that truth. That is to be our focus. And that's one reason the temple gets more real estate in these verses than the government buildings that Solomon built. Because governments and nations and kingdoms and policies and laws change and they come and go. But the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The word of God endures forever. His kingdom will never come to an end. America might not be around in 50 years. I don't know. His kingdom will never come to an end. His kingdom will be established despite our failures. And that's good news, y'all. His kingdom will be established and will be extended in this world despite our failures. And that's good news. And that's what we see next. Look at verse 13. And King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all his work. He cast two pillars of bronze. Eighteen cubits was the height of one pillar, and a line of twelve cubits measured its circumference. It was hollow and its thickness was four fingers. The second pillar was the same. He also made two capitals of cast bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of the one capital was five cubits and the height of the other capital was five cubits. There were lattices of checker work with wreaths of chain work for the capitals on the tops of the pillars. A lattice for the one capital and a lattice for the other capital. Likewise, he made pomegranates in two rows around the one latticework to cover the capital that was on top of the pillar, and he did the same with the other capital. Now the capitals that were on the tops of the pillars in the vestibule were of lily work, four cubits. The capitals were on the, top, were on the two pillars and also above the rounded projection which was beside the latticework. There were 200 pomegranates in two rows all around, and so with the other capital. He set up the pillars at the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the south and called his name Jachin. And he set up the pillar on the north and called his name Boaz. And on the tops of the pillars was lily work. Thus, the work of the pillars was finished. So again, we encounter another detailed description of the temple. And even the most enthusiastic interior decorators and construction workers might struggle through these verses. So, what is the significance and what is the theology of this portion of the text? What is it meant to convey? What could it possibly be saying to us that hasn't been covered already? The key to understanding the theology of this section and what it is telling us about Jesus is found on the two bronze pillars. We're told in verse 13 that Solomon hired Hiram to be the project manager. This is not the same Hiram from chapter 5. This Hiram is an Israelite from the tribe of Naphtali. And he was quite the skilled artist. And so Hiram and company built all the temple furnishings. And again, you can't help but sense the excitement that the author of 1 Kings has as he writes it down. He has spilled all this ink on all these temple furnishings. So Hiram and crew built the two bronze pillars that were at the entrance to the outside of the temple. You can see them in the picture there. One of them is cut away, so you can see inside the temple. There were two bronze pillars on the outside, and these pillars stood about 35 feet up in the air, and they were hollow, so their function was not to support any structure. Their function actually was to recapture the heart of any worshiper who entered the temple area. Their whole point was to recalibrate the hearts of God's people as they came in to worship him. So the two bronze pillars were decorative, but they weren't merely decorative. Rather, they were designed symbolically to remind the worshipers of two ideas as they entered the temple area. These two pillars would remind the worshipers of two things about the Lord. Two things about Yahweh as they entered. When they entered the temple courtyard, their eyes would be drawn to these two pillars and the words that were written on each. They were designed to recapture people's hearts and to assure them of who Yahweh was. They spoke to each worshiper as they entered the temple area. And they said, Jachin, Boaz. So when you came in, you saw it. It's as if they were speaking to you. Jachin, Boaz. And so what message were these two pillars speaking to the gathered worshipers? The answer lies in their names, as found in verse 21. Number one, Jachin. One pillar was named Jachin, which means Yahweh will establish The name comes from the Hebrew word kun, which would be like a a flashing neon light to any Israelite worshiper. They knew this Hebrew word. This was an important Hebrew word. It was used three times in 2 Samuel chapter 7 with the Davidic covenant where Yahweh informed David that he would establish, that's the word kun, he would establish his throne forever. And it was also used four times back in 1 Kings chapter 2. Well, we read that Solomon's kingdom was, or his throne was being established. And so this word was pregnant with meaning and pregnant with hope. But why was this 35-foot-tall bronze pillar named Jakin? Who names a pillar Jakin? God does. But why? Why does the Lord name a pillar Jacon? The idea behind naming this pillar Jachin or naming it Yahweh will establish is to remind the nation of Israel that Yahweh would be faithful to his promise to establish his kingdom through David's line. It was a reminder to the people as they came to worship at the temple that this whole thing was riding on the faithfulness of God and not on them. It was riding on the faithfulness of the Lord to His covenant promises and not riding on the faithfulness of God's people and their commitment to the Lord. It was all writing on the Lord's commitment to His people because our commitment to the Lord stinks. And so how comforting is that? I don't know about you, but it is refreshing to me that all that we are doing here at Grace, at this church, it's not riding on me. And it's not riding on you. It's not riding on any of us. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18 that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Listen, a church can go through quite a lot with that promise. A church, a child of God, a disciple, can go through a whole lot of suffering and go through a bunch of trials when they remember a Hebrew name like Jacob. Yahweh will establish. That's kind of the Old Testament version of Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The pillar named Jakin reminded an Israelite, every time they entered the temple courtyard, that God was in control, that he was sovereign, that he was faithful, that he would establish David's line, that he would establish his kingdom. And that he would keep his promise. Of course, we know that Solomon and the many kings that followed him failed. And the nation did go into exile. So, what a reminder to the original audience as they read 1 Kings chapter 7. They were hearing about a bronze pillar that many of them had never seen before. And they were hearing that God is faithful to his promises, faithful when his people are fickle. And boy, were they fickle. They got deported to Babylon because of their sin, because of their rebellion, because their commitment to Yahweh stunk, and because they chased after other lovers and other gods. They were fickle. And yet, they could have hope in exile that Yahweh would keep his promise and establish the throne of David, even though they were dealing with the consequences of their sin. And we know that God did keep his promise because the ultimate Davidic king did come one day, namely Jesus. And so now we can look back at the pillar named Jacob and be reminded that God kept his promise by sending his son Jesus, who loved us, and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, as Ephesians 5.2 says. And people think First Kings 7 is boring. No way. You just have to do a little work to read, read some commentaries, read some books, think, mull it over, pray, and the Holy Spirit might just show up and give you the warm fuzzies. Because he tells you once again what Jesus is like. He's faithful. He's trustworthy. He's good. He's kind. He's gentle to sinners like us. The other bronze pillar was named Boaz, which means in him is our strength, or in Yahweh is our strength. The idea, of course, is that the king and the nation of Israel would have to rely on the strength of Yahweh to survive. And when you are told that Yahweh is your strength, what does that imply? That implies that you are therefore weak. If Yahweh is strong, then you are weak. When a bronze pillar reminds you that God is strong, that bronze pillar expects you to make the connection that you are strong weak nothing like being humbled right when you come into the temple huh nothing like being put in your place right as you enter church you're weak being told that you are weak and you can't do anything in your own strength is a gift Being confronted as you come in to worship the Lord and being told that you're weak and you can't do anything in your own strength is a gift from the Lord. It may sting when you hear it. It may unsettle you, especially if you're prideful or cocky. It will humble you, but it just might be the thing that sets you free because when you embrace your weakness... That's when you get Jesus. And who doesn't need more of Jesus? Understand this, Grace. The Spirit's power is connected to our weakness. The Spirit is drawn to our weakness like a magnet. That's how Christianity works. The Spirit comes and He hitches Himself to our weakness and our inability. So the Holy Spirit does not mind stooping down to help us he doesn't mind reassuring us when we are scared and he doesn't mind using a bronze pillar covered with pomegranates to remind us of that truth so what we have here in 1 Kings chapter 7 is none other than some of that 2 Corinthians 12 strength made perfect in weakness business that's what's going on here in 1 Kings chapter 7 we're reading about, like the Old Testament version of that 2 Corinthians chapter 12, strength made perfect in weakness business. Right there in verse 21. It's like what scholar F.F. Bruce said when he paraphrased 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 this way. My power is most fully displayed when my people are weak. That's what the pillar named Boaz was telling every worshiper as they came into the temple area, Boaz, the bronze pillar, was saying, Psst, Yahweh's power is most fully displayed when his people are weak. Hey, that's you. I'm talking about you. Connect your weakness to his power. Buckle up and hold on. Yahweh's got this. So let me ask you this morning, do you want to see more of God's power in your life? Where do you need God's power? Where are you weak? Where do you need Jesus? I ask my children this often. Where did you need Jesus today? Because I want them to know that they can't go one day without needing him. Where did you need Jesus today? The starting point is owning up to your weakness. Owning up to your weakness and looking up at a bronze pillar named Boaz and being reassured. Listen, God doesn't mind building a 35-foot-tall bronze pillar that's covered with lilies to bolster your faith. Think about that. God doesn't mind building a 35-foot-tall bronze pillar that's covered with lilies and pomegranates to bolster your faith in Him and His promises. That's why the author goes into so much detail here. That's why he's going on and on and on about all this lattice work. So that you would be reminded that your God is not bothered by your weakness. Your God is not bothered by your fears. So that you would be reminded that Jesus doesn't mind stooping down to help you. So that you'd be reminded that he lives for that kind of stuff. So where in your life do you need to be reminded that his power is most fully displayed when his people are weak? Where do you need to be reminded that his power goes on full display when you feel like you can't go on one more day? Where are you weak? What are you unable to do in your own strength? Where do you need the Spirit of God to empower you? Where have you been relying on your swagger to get things accomplished? That's what Boaz is asking you today. Being acutely aware of your weakness is the starting place. That's how you get strength. That's how Jesus gives strength. That's how you're able to go on one more day when you feel like you can't go on one more day. When you open your eyes and look to a bronze pillar and you feed on Christ by faith. One scholar believes that the names Jacob and Boaz were actually inscribed on the pillars so that the worshiper saw and could read these names to remind them that Yahweh was faithful and powerful. And so we have two names to signal something to the people. Two names, Jacob and Boaz, to remind God's people about the God they serve. When a worshiper would enter the temple area, these two pillars sent out a message. Jacob, Boaz, Jacob, Yahweh is faithful when you are fickle. Boaz, Yahweh's power goes on full display when you feel like you can't go on one more day. What are these verses telling us about Jesus? That Jesus is faithful when you are fickle. And his power goes on display when you are weak. The author of 1 Kings is beaming. He's so excited to tell you this about your God. That Jesus loves to reassure his people. Jesus loves to show up in the middle of your weakness. And in the middle of your pain and in the middle of your struggle and in the middle of your sorrow and in the middle of your sadness and speak a word of promise. God loves to stoop down and help his children. And he doesn't scold us. And he certainly doesn't shame us. Jesus comes and he whispers promises so that we can hang on for one more day. Or hang on for just the next 20 minutes. Because sometimes life is like that. All you can do is hang on for the next 20 minutes. For 20 minutes at a time. And that's okay. Jesus doesn't have back problems. He is totally comfortable bending down every 20 minutes to whisper a promise to your heart. He doesn't mind stooping down and whispering, Jacob, Boaz. Jacob, Boaz. And when you're stressed out, and you feel like life is out of control, just pause and tell yourself, Jacob, Boaz. When you can't sleep at night and you're tossing and turning because you're worried sick, just pause and tell yourself, Jacob, Boaz. When you have totally lost your appetite and you are absolutely sick to your stomach because life is so overwhelming and you don't know what to do about some situation that you are in, just pause and tell yourself, Jacob, Boaz there's something about God's sure promises that have a way of stabilizing you when all hell breaks loose. And Simply repeating, those two Hebrew names can help you with that. So why not give it a try? Let's shout them together one more time, shall we? You ready? Here we go. One, two, three. Jacob, Boaz, There's something about God's sure promises that can keep you from losing your marbles. There's something about God's sure promises that were stamped on two bronze pillars that you can read about in a chapter that some people say is boring. God's promises love to shine like a blinking neon sign in the middle of a seemingly boring chapter. How practical is this? Who doesn't need to be reminded of this often? Two truths about our God that we need to be reminded of continually. I mean, think how differently your life would be if you constantly reminded yourself that God is faithful to his promises and that he alone is the true strength of your life. It's beholding Jesus that transforms weak and fickle sinners. The two pillars presuppose that you are going to come to the temple every week, that you're going to come to church every week, and chances are you are doubting God's promises, and you are weak, and you feel like you just can't go on. The two bronze pillars here that we're talking about presuppose that you are going to come to church every week, and chances are you are doubting God's promises, and you are so weak you feel like you can't go on one more day. The two pillars just assume That when you show up to worship Yahweh, the first thing you need is an injection of hope. Boaz and Jacob greet you as you walk in the front door. And they remind you that God is faithful and his power is made perfect in your weakness. Jesus lived a life that none of us could ever live because we are fickle. And he died the death that we all deserve because we're fickle sinners. And God raised him from the dead. He was delivered up for our sin. And God raised him for our justification so that we could be declared righteous. Jesus came for losers. Jesus came for failures. Jesus came for people who can't get their act together. Jesus came for fickle people. He came for rebels. He came for sinners who have rebelled against him. He came for people who were too weak, too lost, and too dead in their sins. They just couldn't find their way home. As Romans 5, 6 says, For while we are still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. You sin every day You need grace every day. You will never outgrow your need of grace. You will never outgrow your need of hearing a weekly sermon that points to Jesus and Jesus alone as your answer. You are forgiven, Christian. Here's the good news. You are forgiven. Jesus paid it all. It is finished. You are clean. You are welcome in God's presence. Because of Jesus. Jesus came to rescue people like us. To save the ungodly. To save us from the coming wrath of God. May you run to him today in faith. He's faithful. He's powerful. Powerful enough even to save you. Won't you cry out to him today? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love to reassure your people. You get no joy. You get no kicks out of berating us, making us feel terrible, beating us down. It brings you joy to reassure us. I'm afraid we just have the wrong idea about what kind of God you are. We need to be humbled by two bronze pillars this morning and be reminded that you're good, you're faithful, and you're powerful. Would you impress those two truths upon our hearts this morning and transform us as we behold your Son in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.